This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Scott Walker-appointed Wisconsin Natural Resources Board member Fred Prane announced that he will resign effective on Friday. Prane was first appointed to the board in 2015 and refused to step down from it after his term expired in May 2021. Even though Governor Tony Evers had appointed someone new to the board, the Republican-controlled state legislature refused to hold hearings for that nomination. Earlier this year, a 4-3 majority on the state Supreme Court ruled that Prane was allowed to remain on the board until his replacement was confirmed by the legislature. Prane said in a statement on Friday that now is the right time for him to step down and urged the legislature to appoint Evers' nominee. Meanwhile, Governor... Evers has appointed Adam Payne to serve as the new secretary of the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Former DNR Secretary Preston Cole stepped down from the position last month. Payne currently serves as administrator for Sheboygan County, a role he's held for over 20 years. Payne will take over the role starting on January 3rd, but will not fully hold the position until the Republican-led legislature confirms him, something they have not done for a number of Evers-appointed agency heads. Lake Mendota has officially frozen over with the help of last week's cold snap. To be, to be officially considered frozen over by the state climatology office, the ice must hold for at least 24 hours. It was officially declared frozen on a Christmas day, almost two weeks earlier than last year's freeze date of January 7th. While the lake may be frozen, the Clean Lakes Alliance warns that its surface may still be thin in some places and reminds everyone to make sure there is at least four inches of ice before venturing out. Finally, with the holiday season coming to an end, the City of Madison has announced when you can place your Christmas tree out for collection. There will be two rounds of curbside collections for Christmas trees, one starting on January 3rd and the other starting on January 17th. The City's Street Division reminds everyone to remove all tree stands from your tree before you set them out, along with all decorations, bags, and anything other than your tree. More information on disposing of it can be found on the City of Madison's website. And now on to today's top stories. Last month, the state's Employment Relations Commission ruled that UW Health does not have to recognize any union organized by nurses who work for the hospital network. Now, those nurses are taking that ruling to the courts and hope to have that decision reversed. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. Nurses at UW Health have been pushing for a union since 2019, after their previous union dissolved in 2014 after the passage of Act 10. The UW Hospital and Clinics Authority, or UWHCA, says that they are unable to recognize any union after the passage of Act 10. But the nurses say that Act 10 only removed the obligation to recognize a union, and the hospital can still recognize their union if they wanted to. The back and forth between the nurses and their employer led to a near strike in September. That strike was called off just days before, after SEIU, the union looking to represent the nurses, and UW Health found a different path. Both parties agreed to ask the state's Employment Relations Commission to rule on whether or not the hospital was able to recognize a union. Why push for a union? Kate Walton is a registered nurse at UW Health. She said last month that, since their union dissolved in 2014, working conditions at the hospital have gone downhill. You know, my colleagues and I have really noticed a change. Even since I started in 2016, I've noticed a change in both the ability of nurses to speak up on behalf of our patients and in things like staffing ratios and the ability to provide safe 
care for our patients. Colin Gillis is a member of UW Nurses United, the nurses union, and works as a nurse at UW Health. He says that when nurses are treated better, it results in better care for their patients. We want to create a workplace that attracts and retains the best nurses because we think that Wisconsin uh, people in Wisconsin, the people of Wisconsin deserve the best healthcare in the world, and so they deserve the best nurses in the world. And to do that, to, to get those nurses, we have to have a, re- a world-class hospital for workers as well as for patients. Late last month, the state's Employment Relations Commission ruled that UW Health does not have to recognize a union. Now, UW Health nurses have filed an appeal of that decision with the Dane County Circuit Court. The appeal states that the commission failed to consider multiple facts in their argument that UW Health nurses are considered employees of the UWHCA, did not allow for a hearing to clarify any facts, and ultimately came to an incorrect interpretation of the law. They asked that the ruling made by the Employment Relations Commission be reversed and to enforce the hospital system to recognize and collectively bargain with the nurses' union. The ruling by the Employment Relations Commission only concerns mandatory union recognition. Voluntary union recognition has been the nurse's goal since 2019, and multiple legal memos, including one by the state's nonpartisan legislative council, who advises policymakers on legal and policy research, and by State Attorney General Josh Call, have said that the hospital can voluntarily recognize a union and that Act 10 only removed the obligation to recognize a union. Still, Gillis says that the hospital has been regularly talking with nurses and what they call meet-and-discuss sessions, where both administrators and nurses are able to talk about solutions to problems at the hospital. Gillis says that those meetings between nurses and administration have been fruitful. Back in the fall, we started working with the administration on a peer support system where a nurse who's facing discipline in some form can have a peer, like a coworker, present with them in any disciplinary hearings uh, to take notes and be a supporting presence. And the administration has been working on that and has asked for feedback from us, and we've worked together to develop that program. And that program's coming out in uh, the coming month. The appeal was submitted to the Dane County Circuit Court last week, and a hearing has not yet been set. While UW Health says that they support the commission's ruling, they said in a statement that they are petitioning the state Supreme Court to decide if they are able to voluntarily recognize a union. They say that they hope to have a ruling as soon as possible, but the state's high court has not yet decided if they will take up UW Health's petition. Meanwhile, the nurses' union is still working to get as many nurses as possible signed onto the union. According to Gillis, they have had several hundred nurses sign up for due-paying union membership, with more nurses signing on every day. Additionally, Gillis says that they've sent a petition to the National Labor Relations Board for their own opinion on whether or not they are able to be recognized and collectively bargain with the hospital. That application is still under review. No matter what, Gillis says that voluntary recognition would be the easiest route for everyone. There's no election. It's just we demonstrate to the administration satisfaction that the majority of nurses want uh, SEIU to represent them. And they say, OK, all right, let's we don't have to have NLRB get involved or work get involved. We'll just recognize you and we'll bargain a contract. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggy 
More schools and school campuses and libraries across the country are adding bikes to their inventory, increasing access to bicycling along the way. This expansion includes more opportunities in Wisconsin. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection reports. The public libraries in Wisconsin's capital city are part of a growing movement that allows residents to not only check out books, but bikes as well. There are more than 30 bike lending library programs around the U.S., with Madison starting last year. Residents who have a library card can check out an electric bike from one of the city libraries for free. Research shows a number of social, cultural, and physical barriers keep cities from creating inclusive biking communities. Madison Public Library's Tana Elias describes it as an equity initiative because more people have the option to consider it. You don't even have to pay to rent it, and then you discover the service and get a little exercise in Madison and get to try something else out to see if that's something that you'd like to do long term. And supporters say these programs open more people to the world of electric bikes since most models cost at least $1,000. Municipal bike shares can help with access issues, but their payment infrastructure doesn't work for those who are unbanked. Elias suggests the Madison program could have a big impact long term because of the library system's reach. In our physical libraries in Madison, we have nine locations and we have about two million visits happening annually. The current season for the Madison bike program wrapped in mid-December and the lending will resume next March. The library system teams up with the bike sharing company B-Cycle to carry out the initiative. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. This story was produced with original reporting from Simon Janzer for Next City. Last week, President Joe Biden signed the $858 billion National Defense Authorization Act, outlining the military's policy and budget priorities for the next year. Included in that massive bill was $350 million to build a new heavy icebreaker for the Great Lakes to help keep shipping lanes open for Midwest port cities during the winter months. To learn more about the importance of a new icebreaker, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Jim Weekly, president of the Lake Carriers Association, a trade group representing U.S. flagged shipping vessels on the Great Lakes. What is the ice situation up on the Great Lakes sort of right now, and why are these types of icebreakers so important to Wisconsin's shipping industry? So um, right now we've got a couple spots that are really problematic. Uh, no surprise, uh, Duluth-Superior um, port is a, is a mess with ice. Um, now sh- ships are able to move in and out of there with uh, Coast Guard ice breaking assistance and with commercial tugs working the docks. Um, the bigger surprise and the, really, the biggest problem right now is Western Lake Erie, where we had a lot of um, like flash freeze and a lot of sustained winds that built up the ice. So we had uh, several ships that were literally stuck in the ice for for many hours until both the Canadian Coast Guard and the U.S. Coast Guard could send um, uh, icebreakers down or to, to restore traffic. And, and now they've got to escort them and convoy them through that area. 
Um, the St. Mary's River up in uh, northern Michigan has also um, got quite a bit of ice and needs commercial ice breaking. I guess the good news is that the Straits of Mackinac, another problem area, does not need ice breaking right now. And um, fortunately for the state of Wisconsin, most of uh, Lake Michigan is, is in pretty good shape ice-wise. And how many icebreakers are currently there on the Great Lakes breaking up ice? And why, why is it so important to have this new one? So um, currently the um, U.S. Coast Guard has nine icebreakers stationed on the Great Lakes. Of those nine, three of them are unavailable for maintenance reasons. Um, the Canadian Coast Guard has two icebreakers that are stationed on the Great Lakes. Of those two, only one of them is available for icebreaking, and the other one is uh, way out on the St. Lawrence Seaway doing aids to navigation. And actually, I should back up. Remember I mentioned that um, three of them are not available for uh, maintenance reasons, but two of them, two more, so a, a total of five of the nine U.S. Coast Guard icebreakers right now are not available for icebreaking because two of them are doing uh, aids to navigation work. Um, now, in fairness, one of them might be able to uh, divert from aids to navigation work, but uh, one of them is um, headed out the seaway to do aton work out there. So it, it clearly points out that they don't have enough resources to do, do, the, do the job. And, and I always go out of way, way to make sure, and in full disclosure, I'm a former Coast Guard officer myself. So, you know, the men and women in the 9th Coast Guard District and the Great Lakes are doing the best they can. The problem is that they're not getting the support that they deserve, and they're not getting the resources that we deserve. That, and that's why we're so excited about getting this uh, new icebreaker authorized. And, and you know, literally, we, we've been working on this for, you know, five, ten years. And in the past um, three years, we've been working it very hard. So we're, we're really excited to see some of the fruition of our efforts. And, you know, to give a lot of credit where credit is due, you know, our, our champion in the House of Representatives has been Congressman Gallagher from the, you know, Green Bay, Sturgeon Bay area, and Senator Baldwin in the Senate has been our champion there. So, you know, it's a, it's a Wisconsin story. Um, people don't realize that Wisconsin is a, uh, it's a maritime state, right? You've, you've got borders on three different uh, areas that are all maritime. Um, so it's important to Wisconsin. About 20% of the total cargo that we move and the U.S. flagships move about 90 million tons of cargo a year, so about 20% of that is going to move during the winter. Um, so it's a critical um, supply chain to the steel and construction industry and to our power grid. So without that 20% of cargo, you, you put our uh, Great Lakes economy, which is the, the third largest economy in the world, uh, at risk. Now, circling back to that icebreaker, one of the things with uh, the one that was just approved by Congress is that it will be a heavy icebreaker. Now, tell me, what is a heavy icebreaker? I know that the Great Lakes have, have one heavy icebreaker already, the Mackinac. So what, what is sort of the difference between a heavy icebreaker and a regular icebreaker? So it's kind of like the difference between a pickup truck and a um, putting a, a snowplow on your the front of your pickup truck and putting a snowplow on the front of a dump truck, right? That's that's the difference. Icebreakers are basically nautical snowplows. So on the Great Lakes, we have the, the Coast Guard Cutter Mackinac, and initially what we wanted and we thought was could be done for about $170 million was a twin to the Mackinac. Uh, we think that's a great platform. It's a proven hull design. And um, initially the plan was for the Coast Guard to build two of them. Um, but they never got around to building the second one, and now we said it's time to build the second one. You move down in, in size, 
um, to the 140-foot-long ice-breaking tugs. So those are more like your, you know, your they're good for close quarters. They're more maneuverable, but you know, force equals mass times acceleration. At some point, you take a, a heavy ice breaker to move through the. We call them ridges, where the um, ice will build up top of itself from the wind blowing on it. You need a heavy icebreaker to break through that ice. Uh, we saw in the flooding in the Detroit St. Clair River in uh, February of 2021, the small 140-foot icebreakers just were ineffective. They couldn't do it. And unfortunately, the Mackinac was broken, so they couldn't do it. So the, the people along that Detroit River, their housing and their businesses were, were devastated by the flooding um, because the Coast Guard lacked the resources to free up that, uh, that um, ice jam that was created. So... We specifically wanted the Mackinac. The Coast Guard said, well, you don't necessarily need a Mackinac. So they said, well, how about something that's equivalent? Mackinac are better. So, all right, we'll take that. Um, so that's the big difference. It's like putting a heavy icebreaker um, is needed in the thicker, heavier uh, windrows, and that's what we need. The 140s, great platforms, no disrespect to the men and women that are selling those, Again, they, they're just a, not the right resource for the heavier icing conditions. And now, how how important is this new heavy ice breaker? What will this new new breaker sort of uh, help out with? I know you went through the differences between a heavy one and a regular ice breaker. What's what will really sort of solidify the need for this new ice breaker? So. Let me put it in economic terms. We hired an economist to do some uh, analysis of, of the cargo impacts that were delayed over the past 10 years. Um, and based on his economic analysis, um, on the past 10 years, the Great Lakes economy has lost $2 billion, that's a billion with a B, in economic activity, and about 10,000 jobs were lost based on inadequate ice-breaking resources, right? And um, so that's the difference. In 1979, the Coast Guard had 14 icebreakers. Now they have nine. Um, and in, those, in that 1979 mix, they had two heavies. And the, the Mackinac, current Mackinac, replaced a previous vessel called the Mackinac, which was much bigger um, and was more capable. Um, it wasn't as maneuverable as the current Mackinac, but that was the reason they were going to build two of them. So we need system resiliency. Currently, the Mackinac, the only heavy icebreaker, is out of commission because they're in a maintenance period. Um, and we need resiliency so they can be two places at once. Currently, the Coast Guard has the ability to effectively manage one trouble spot. They really don't have the resource to effectively manage two trouble spots, and it's not unusual for the St. Mary's River, the Straits of Mackinac, Western Lake Erie, Detroit, St. Clair, all to need um, ice-breaking assistance. People, people from outside the Great Lakes region do not understand the vast geographies that the U.S. Coast Guard and our ships have to operate in. If you look at the East Coast, the U.S. Coast Guard has 25 ice-breaking assets on the East Coast. Keep in mind they're only breaking ice between basically New Jersey and Maine. Also keep in mind that it's easier ice to break because it's a saltwater environment, right? So it doesn't freeze as hard. Our ice on the Great Lakes and the freshwater is more like the Arctic ice conditions. Also on the East Coast, they have tidal influences, so a lot of times the ice will break up on, uh, as the tide comes in and out. 
So it's an easier job on the East Coast, and they have more resources to do it. But look at our geography. Lake Michigan alone, if you look at the shoreline of Lake Michigan by itself, it's 1,640 miles of shoreline. That's the equivalent distance of going from Maine to Miami, from going from Portland, Maine to Homestead, Florida, which is just north of Miami, is 1,640 nautical miles. So that's just one of our lakes. And we don't have the number of, we have nine resources, they have 25 resources. So clearly they're more resourced on the East Coast than they are on the Great Lakes. And that's why we've lost $2 billion of economic activity and 10,000 jobs over the past 10 years. We need to right the ship. Um, and I haven't even talked about the, the challenges that Coast Guard has with their current fleet, that, that most of their ships are 40 years old. They're that 140-foot class of vessels. Um, they're constantly uh, having engineering problems. One of them has just had a major engineering casualty last year. They had multiple. I think they lost over 100 days of um, cutter days last year. Uh, they went through a service life extension program, and they never replaced the power plants, right? Imagine a car that was built in the 1970s that's still out there with the same engine. Um, they had a good opportunity to do that for budget cut reasons. They didn't replace them. I think that was a missed opportunity, and we continued to pay the price. So the challenge is not only to build a heavy icebreaker that they authorized, but they've also put $20 million into the budget to design the replacement for the 140s. Now, my biggest frustration is the Coast Guard claims that it'll take them 11 years, 11 years to build a second heavy icebreaker. That, to me, that's embarrassing. Um, you can, the Mark W. Barker, our newest Great Lakes freighter, was built in, uh, I think, less than two years. Um, it doesn't take that long to build a ship. They've got an existing design they can build on. I, I think they could be cutting steel, uh, and they could be launching their ship in five if they were serious about it. But uh, for whatever reason, they claim they need 11 years to get it done. I've been talking with Jim Weekly, president of the Lake Carriers Association, about the new heavy icebreaker approved by Congress last week. Jim, thank you so much again for talking with me. Nate, thanks for giving me the opportunity. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Earlier this month, Wausau native and UW-Madison nuclear engineering student Grace Stanky was crowned Miss America. Stanky joined Andy Moore on the Friday 8 o'clock buzz last week to talk about what it's like to be Miss America and her work on the future of nuclear energy. I want to jump right in because once Wisconsinites learn about your devotion to clean energy and nuclear power, a lot of them immediately wanted to know, since reactors use uranium for nuclear fuel, processing the material into small ceramic pellets that's stacking together into sealed metal fueled rods, more than 200 of the rods, of course, are bundled together to form a fuel assembly. So since inside the reactor vessel, the fuel rods are immersed in water, which acts as both a coolant and a moderator to help slow down the neutrons produced by fission to sustain the chain reaction, what is the better light water reactor to use, the pressurized water reactor or the boiling water reactor? So to 
explain what I think and why I think, I'm going to go back to kind of power plant basics for all of the listeners. So the best way to describe any sort of power plant is you've got a tea kettle that's going to produce steam, you know, after a certain amount of time Mm -hmm. of being heated. And then that steam turns a turbine. So I picture like those little windmills that you would put in your yard as a kid, the little shiny plastic things. So imagine just holding that above a tea kettle steam spout and then that's what turns that windmill and that in turn produces power so that's the basics of every single different power plant now nuclear is heating Mm -hmm. that water it's heating that tea kettle Mm -hmm. from the decay of nuclear products and specifically usually it's uranium so that heat is what's common between pwrs and bwrs so the pressurized water reactors and boiling water reactors now what is different between the two is the process in which that steam is is created so in a pressurized water reactor the uranium is put inside a pool of water the water around it gets hot and that water then in turn just uses heat to transfer to another pool of water Mm -hmm. that's that's the water inside the tea kettle and then heats that up versus a boiling water reactor is just basically putting the rocks directly in the tea kettle and letting it heat it up directly. So for me personally, I prefer BWRs, the boiling water reactors. They have a great engineering um, Uh intellect and and interest in them. So that's my personal preference. (laughs) But they both work great. They they both create 20% of America's clean energy right now. 20% 20% of America That is overall a larger actually. number than I would have guessed. So we're kind of on our way with it, but a long way to go, as I'm sure you, you can talk to as well. Mm-hmm. We're having a little fun with the scientific nature of your studies, but the seriousness and implications of your social impact topic helped you stand out in the competition, did it not? I guess so, but at the same time, every single one of those 50 women on that stage with me are completely capable of doing the job of Miss America, and they are Mm. incredible women. There are Mm -hmm. future trauma surgeons, attorneys, Mm. teachers, and already people that are working in their specific industries on that stage. So I think being a nuclear engineer, it was unusual, (laughs) but it certainly by no means put me ahead in any way. Before we get to the pageant itself, which I know the visitors are really interested to hearing about, I, I do want to ask you to use this opportunity to launch and and launch into um, what will be some of your messaging in the coming year. Just briefly talk about why nuclear energy promises a, a future of cleaner energy. Yeah, clean energy, first of all, when I talk about clean energy, I'm talking about all zero carbon energy sources. So zero carbon energy sources is anything that produces electricity that doesn't create additional carbon to go into the atmosphere. So nuclear power is one of those forms of zero carbon Mm -hmm. electricity generation. There are many others, including wind, solar, hydroelectric, biomass, geothermal, and, and so many more. But I find that nuclear power has the biggest hurdles to overcome. And it also has one of the best promises for our future, simply because it doesn't depend on the outside environment around it. Mm-hmm. That's the one struggle that we have with wind mm-hmm. and solar if we rely on mm-hmm. it for long periods of time and for our main power grid. Yeah. And I see nuclear power being that baseload energy source for our future as we continue to move towards zero carbon energy. I fully support wind and solar. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when we do have those sunny days here in Wisconsin <laughs> and in the Midwest where it's freezing right now, uh, when we do have the sun, I, I fully support using a solar panel to help reduce your own utility sure. bills at that point. Yes. But nuclear energy mm-hmm. is a safe, effective mm-hmm. It's small land usage, and it's a very powerful source of energy. Let's talk about the, the, the pageant last Friday night. When it came down to the two of you, did you think you had it? 
Absolutely not. At that point, <laughs> Karen and I were both uh, talking to each other just about how we both envisioned each other mm. as, as Miss America. Mm-hmm. You know, I was telling her, I'm like, Karen, you're, you're going to have a great year as Miss America. And she said, likewise, back oh. to me. And that was just, it, oh. it speaks to the sister, the not necessarily the sisterhood, but the, the mm. companionship and the relationships that are built. Because mm-hmm. last Thursday night, when that crowning did happen, it was just a remarkable experience to be at that point in the competition. At that mm. point now, mm-hmm. um, you know, a week later, I've earned almost $70,000 in scholarships. Yes. And it's, it's actually not a cash scholarship. It can only be paid directly to universities. So I just want to emphasize that. I didn't walk away with fifty grand in my pocket. I can't oh. tell you that much. <laughs> But, uh, well, I was going to ask you that because we Miss are, America are, materials themselves say cash scholarship, and I think, what well, did they give it to you in a suitcase or what? Gosh, no, no. <laughs> uh, we're we're provided with scholarships, and that just you know, for me, that changes my life. Prior oh, sure. to last week, I wasn't even considering going oh. to grad school, oh. and now grad school's on the table. Oh, for me. And the Miss America organization wow. awards. Five million dollars mm. a year to women across the country. You've been in pageants from the time you were thirteen and competed in the Miss Wisconsin Outstanding Teen Organization and, and other pageants. It it must have been countless hours of, of work and preparation, in addition to you know school and and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. What has the pageant experience meant for you as a person? For me personally, the professional development skills I gained out of this organization and my time in it is is truly remarkable. At this point in time, I am not afraid to go into any sort of engineering <laughs> job interview. I'm ready for whatever they throw at me because Miss America job interviews are, are intense. You know, you yeah. got a 10-minute interview, but yeah. that, those 10 minutes are significantly mm. harder than any hour-long engineering mm. interview I've had. And that includes the one with math problems. Oh. <laughs> but, but overall, in terms yeah. of the friendship I've gained, the scholarship dollars I've earned, you know, coming back to the idea that I've earned 70,000, almost $70,000 in scholarships as of right now, thanks to my time in this organization, it's it's changing my life and making me a better engineer and also changing my life in so many ways I, I couldn't even speak to. I want to ask you, I, I know some of the listeners will want to hear you speak to some of the stereotypes of pageantry, like are there pageant mothers and, and are there mean girls? Absolutely not. First of all, we're not even a beauty pageant anymore. The Miss America organization is a scholarship competition uh-huh. now. We're not. We don't have swimsuit. We no longer judge yes. on outer beauty. It's the organization is evolving with the times. That's something yes. that every hundred year old organization has to do, and that's what the Miss America organization is doing as we're going into our hundred and first year right now. But it's something that I, when I say I'm friends with all of those women, I mean literally. This morning it's eight twenty here in Wisconsin right now. I was already speaking with four or five of them this morning, just catching up with them and seeing how their day is going. It's truly a friendship and a good bond that we have between each other, because to get to that point is already a significant achievement. And at, at that whole week of spending with all 51 mm-hmm. candidates, it was more important for us to be there, be present, be present, yes. 100% ourselves. Yes. And just embrace the moment yes. because you only have one. That's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And mm. we were all making sure that we were making the most of it. Well, you hit the ground running and you have such a furiously busy year ahead. It'll be massive amounts of travel, will it not? And well, you're going to have to press pause on, will it be your senior year at UW? It, it, t- tell us how that will all work. So on average, Miss America travels about 20,000 miles a month. So yes, it will be very, very busy. And I'm very grateful the UW-Madison Department of Engineering Physics, where my major resides, 
they are working with me just because I have so little left in my degree. They're able to make it happen where most of my classes right now I'll be able to do online and asynchronous. So that means I can do them on my own time when I need them to when I have time to work on it. But mm-hmm. I, I got to work on one more class still that I'm working oh. on making that happen for. It's only been a week and oh, it's okay. finally <laughs> down in Madison right now. So uh-huh. okay. I, I'm, I'm in touch with professors. But uh, okay. right now I still am on track to graduate and I'll be in part time part time school for the next two semesters. Grace, thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with us on the Friday Buzz. Congratulations and, and best of luck in the busy coming year. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andy. I appreciate okay. it. A goose, a swan, and a pelican walk into a room. No, that's not the start of a bad joke or the plot of a new children's movie. Rather, it's a form of animal rehabilitation to help keep up the spirits of social animals. Wildlife Weekly feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares how these animal friendships are forged. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about group housing of social species or conspecifics in wildlife enclosures. Now, it's not something we do often, but we do have a lot of different species that do well together in groups and sometimes it's just because that individual is the type of species that really does need to have friends in order to feel like they're in a natural setting or maybe they just really thrive in situations and and living conditions where other animals are there to be mentally stimulating or maybe they're able to vocalize to each other maybe they talk to each other we don't really know too much about that but i'll give you a couple of examples here which is the reason i'm talking about this radio segment today Right now in our waterfowl room, which is a room we have set up specifically for this year in 2022, we have what I like to call a waterfowl menagerie. The menagerie is filled right now with a tundra swan, a young juvenile who is unfortunately not going to be a rehabilitation case, but will we're going to attempt to place an education. And we also have a goose that's in rehabilitation who had uh, unfortunately been shot, something that we have seen before usually happens during hunting season, but we have another, actually we've got a couple of geese. So, and oftentimes they're here in rehabilitation for things like lead toxicity or fractures. So we've got one goose who seems to be very, it's very interesting. It's very small, seems to uh, enjoy hiding in small spaces in our waterfowl room and really enjoys looking out windows, which we (laughs) found this morning, which I thought was pretty funny. Kind of just forlornly looking out a window, wishing he could be outside, I'm pretty sure. So we have that. And we also have an American white pelican. That pelican had come in uh, about a month ago or more and was admitted due to a beak fracture and had crash landed. None of these birds have the highly pathogenic avian influenza because we do regular testing in wildlife rehabilitation now since we're in an outbreak situation. And so all of them together are in one room and they used to be separate. So the swan being a really large bird was separate from the pelican, another very large bird. But we've noticed over time that our American white pelican started to behaviorally change. So after multiple days in care in his own isolated room, he 
started to become more depressed, uh, would stop eating his live fish for a little bit. And we only let that go on for about a day until we were like, ooh, you know, he's tucking his head under his wing. He's showing some signs that he's just not really active. And so if it's not an issue medically, you start to think, okay, is it something behavioral? Is it stress? Is it something where, well, thinking about a pelican, they're pretty social species. They're with big groups and flocks while they're on migration, on bodies of water. They share space with other waterfowl. Now, swans and uh, pelicans, not exactly the type you'd normally think, well, maybe putting them in the same room would be okay. But we did have a large enough space where we felt it was okay that they could uh, separate their areas. Uh, and we wanted to make sure to behaviorally monitor them, which we were using by uh, putting trail cameras in the room just to watch their behavior. And you'd notice that every once in a while, the swan would, you know, stretch a neck out and kind of get close to the pelican. The pelican might snap in defense and be like, no, no, don't get near me. And then they would separate space and they eat different things, right? So fish for the pelican. Our tundra swan loves to eat greens. So there's a lot of, you know, right now, since we don't have natural greens like duckweed or things, we have just lettuce that we have to purchase from the grocery stores, which does get very expensive, unfortunately. But they really find enrichment out of shredding the lettuce leaves. So they've got their separate food sources, their separate spaces. And the goose has recently just been added to the group and seems to be getting along okay. But the things that we're watching for on day one are aggressive behaviors, especially with waterfowl. It might be pecking on each other, maybe pulling out feathers. Most of the time, it's going to be uh, vocalizations that maybe sound like they're in distress. But really, what we have found so far is that the pelican brightened up right away, which was so great. Instead of having a head tucked under a wing, day one uh, with the swan, he was bright and doing his normal behaviors, which is trying to be aggressive towards anyone who enters the room, which we only enter once or twice a day for fresh food and fresh water for the animals, medications, and definitely some aggression towards people, which is great. That's what we want. We don't want to have a friendly pelican, especially if he's going to be released later in the spring. The tundra swan, being a not releasable swan, <laughs> spent most of his time just vocalizing to himself, and it's pretty cute. Um, we have some <laughs> videos of our wildlife center kitchen. You can just hear in the distance this little soft little honk, and he does that constantly throughout the day. But it was nice. You could hear the, the pelican. The swan was, I think, vocalizing to the pelican at times, and then now we have the goose in the mix. So lots of fun talking there. So our waterfowl room has all these species that typically would share like a body of water, but have at least enough area within the housing to be able to get away from each other if they felt like they were being antagonized. And it really, for waterfowl especially, it's it's something that is um, really, it's important for some of those gregarious species when they're, they're sensitive to having kin relationships or with other flocks. So we will continue to monitor their behavior, but it seems like they're all getting along pretty well and are going to be stable through the winter in our waterfowl room. And uh, another example, we have a couple of American goldfinches that have been in care for conjunctivitis. It's a bacterial mycoplasma that is found mostly in the finch family. It causes swelling of the eyes and crusting of the eyes and causes problems with, you know, once they get it with direct contact through water or food, it can cause them to go blind if it was left untreated. So we treat for that. And, um, We've had a couple of those finches in separate isolation housing, but once that 
has been resolved, the bacteria has been rid, and they've been in quarantine for about 21 days or more, then we are able to put them together. And I thought it was really cute. The uh, two goldfinches that have so far been put together, they would vocalize back and forth to each other in the songbird room that we have. We have an entire building that is right now separated for just songbird species. A quarantine section is separate from our non-quarantine. So they could hear each other from a distance, but then the day that they put them together in the cage, it was like fireworks or something. It's two males and they are just sitting on branches, just vocalizing to each other and trilling and making all these chirps. And it's, it's kind of like, and again, this is kind of anthropomorphizing things, but I think sometimes it, it really just feels good um, when you know that there's positivity <laughs> in what you've done to make a decision of co-housing. It's like they became the fastest friends that you've ever seen in a songbird. They're just chirp, 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 back and forth, back and forth. And you know that finches are very large flockers, very social species. And so by putting them together in a cage, we are actually enriching them, providing them with something else to think about in rehabilitation, another person, or excuse me, another bird to talk to. And hopefully they're talking about things like how great the food is and how they don't have to be out in this cold weather and they have this beautiful housing and everything they could want for for the next couple of months. You know, At least that's what I like to think. And <laughs> that's what we're aiming to do in rehabilitation is give them the best care possible, the best housing possible, the most nutrition, you know, natural enrichment, everything that they need during the treatment period, especially in the winter when they're going to be here for quite a while. So that's just examples of two different types of species we co-house. We also do some with raptors and some other songbird species and things. Some animals you definitely can't co-house, but you know those were two great examples that we have had in this last week. And you can look up welfare guidelines from especially AZA, but there's veterinary guidelines, a lot of literature written about co-housing different species, what minimum standards the cages need to be, how much space you have to have based on their wingspan and size, and what to do to keep them from fighting over food sources and proper enrichment. Um, there's a lot that goes into it, but we want to make sure that we give them everything necessary so that we don't have a problem with co-housing those species. We want it to be beneficial for those animals. So it's definitely a strategy that we use as rehabilitators, and uh, I think it's a great one, especially during the wintertime. So this has been our segment today on WORT about wildlife and co-housing different species, conspecifics or other. And I hope you uh, enjoyed the segment. And if you ever find any sick, injured or orphaned wildlife, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. And otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Andrew Nine walks through how scientists may have found the oldest stars in the Milky Way. Good evening and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine and tonight... Astronomers may have found the first stars in the Milky Way. In a recent paper published in the Astrophysical Journal, a team of astronomers at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Germany, led by Dr. Hans Walter Rieks, announced the discovery of a population of stars in the center of the galaxy that may be from the original proto-galaxy that would become the Milky Way we know today. But how could we possibly know that? To begin, let's talk about how galaxies are formed. Galaxies in the early universe were much smaller than they are today, 
and they also did not have many of the heavy metals produced through evolving stars, supernovae, and merging neutron stars. Over time, these small proto-galaxies merged with each other, making larger galaxies, and stellar evolution produced more heavy elements until we get to the massive galaxies we see around us today, like the Milky Way. However, according to some models of how galaxies merge, some of the original stars from the first proto-galaxies may still be found in the inner regions of massive galaxies. They would stand out mostly due to their old age, which would show up as a relative lack of heavy elements compared to other stars. But there are a lot of stars to go through, so how could astronomers find the first stars? Enter Gaia. The Gaia mission launched by the European Space Agency in 2013, has so far mapped the positions and movements of more than 1.5 billion stars in the Milky Way. Gaia has given our best view yet of the structure of the Milky Way, enabling astronomers to put together detailed maps of much of our galaxy. Dr. Reeks and his collaborators sifted through the mountains of data from Gaia in search of the first stars in the galaxy. But there are a few challenges that the team considered. First and foremost, the further away a star is, the fainter it appears. The center of the galaxy is almost 26,000 light years away, so picking out anything but the very brightest stars is all but impossible. The second challenge is in identifying which stars are metal poor. Astronomers determine which elements are present in stars by studying their spectra. Each element leaves a unique fingerprint in the light from a star, and by splitting that light into its component colors, those fingerprints can be identified. The Gaia satellite does have a spectrograph on board, and it has so far taken more than 200 million spectra. The problem is that the spectrograph on board Gaia has very low resolution. The resolution determines how finely you can split the colors of incoming light and how many lines you can identify. The higher the resolution, the more fine details can be identified in a spectrum and therefore the more lines can be picked out, which enables more elements to be uncovered. Dr. Reeks and his collaborators got around these challenges by taking a clever approach. They restricted their analysis to red giants in the galactic center. As stars evolve into red giants towards the end of their lives, they swell up to more than 100 times their original diameter. As they expand, they get much, much brighter, as much as 10,000 times their original brightness. This makes them much easier to pick out in the distant center of the galaxy. Red giants also have much deeper and more identifiable features in their spectra that can be seen even in the low-resolution spectra from Gaia. These factors make red giants ideal targets to look for the first stars. Their analysis identified more than 2 million red giants in the galactic center that could be among the first stars. To make final determinations, the team had to go through all the spectra to determine how many heavy elements were in the stars. It's impossible to go through that many spectra by hand, so the astronomers turned to machine learning to get the job done. Machine learning, in a nutshell, is a way to let a computer find its own way to analyze data and identify patterns in order to make decisions about the data. In this case, the astronomers used machine learning to study the spectra and find their metallicities, the abundances of elements in each spectrum. In the end, the astronomers found approximately 18,000 stars concentrated within about 9,000 light years of the center of the galaxy that have about 10% of the heavy elements as does our sun. 
The astronomers determined the age of these stars to be about 12.5 billion years old, which means they formed less than about 2 billion years after the Big Bang. The team concluded that these stars came from one of the first proto-galaxies that would go on to merge with others to form the Milky Way we know today. Now we know a little bit more of our home galaxy's history, and there's no telling how much more there is to learn from Gaia. We have a bright future ahead of us to look forward to as we search through more of the data. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy. Thank you for tuning in, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. The reporter tonight was Mike Mullen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Andy Moore with the 8 o'clock buzz, Jackie Sandberg, and the Radio Astronomy crew. Dave Lawrenson engineered this show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe at your preferred podcast directory. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrico Patio. Good night.